0: Football CFB today by Peter Ramage. You'll know him from playing at Newcastle, Crystal Palace, QPR, amongst a few others. Also the spell in India, but now in the US, how are you, Peter?
1: I'm very well, thank you. How are you?
0: Not bad at all. And I must be honest with you though, I'm I'm jealous of that view behind you, very sunny in America. <laughs> what do you get yeah, to America?
1: Um, you know what it is, it was back in the summer of 2016. Um, and I was a little bit in a no man's land I was 33 year old, obviously coming to the tail end of my career and um, I had the opportunity to go on trial at a club in England and I was literally just about to get in the car and uh, and go down and I got a phone call from Mark Bertram who was my coach when I was at or coach when I was at QPR who was out here in Arizona uh, asked us if I wanted to come out and have a look and be brutally honest with you, geography wasn't one of my greatest subjects at school. I had to kind of Google where, uh, where Arizona was, but um, I'd always wanted to play in America. Um, I had a little stint, obviously, uh, abroad previously in my career. So I thought, you know, last part of my career, why not come out to the, uh, the desert state and have some fun?
0: You mentioned the fact you've been out, out in the US now for a couple of years. What's your role exactly with Phoenix Rising?
1: Yeah, so now I'm the assistant coach. Assistant: Um, assistant to the head coach. I was a player here for 18 months. Um, returned after the end of 2017, uh, uh, 17 season. Uh, retired. Began at Newcastle United's academy coaching. Um, and then I got a phone call. Rick Shans, who's the, the head coach now, took over the reins uh, from the previous coach Patrice Carteron, and yeah, he needed, he needed some help. So. I knew the club had been there for a, for a couple of years. Still knew uh, all kind of the the ownership group and things like that. So it was uh, whilst well, so it was a tough decision to make to leave Newcastle. Um, it's a club I'd always supported and wanted to work in. When I retired, uh, this opportunity was just too good to turn down.
0: You mentioned the fact that you came through at Newcastle. You played there. You had aspirations to work there when you finished playing. When you're coming through the Newcastle system, I mean, you came through at a time when Sir Bobby Robson was the first team manager, you were coming through the academy. Did you have any, many dealings with Bobby?
1: Yeah, many, many dealings. I mean, we used to, every Monday morning, um, we used to train with the first team. It was kind of like the recovery session, we'd just have a five a side competition. The, the guys that played on a Saturday um, would, do, would generally do a little bit less, but, you know, us, us reserve team players would uh, would make up the numbers, and he was. He was always on the side of the pitch. I mean, the reserves trained on the field next to the first team. Invariably, he would, you know, set up the the first team training session, let John Carver, Dave Geddes, his assistants at the time, to run that session, come over and watch us. I mean, his attention to detail for for everything um, about everybody was was just incredible. You know, he knew much about me as an 18-year-old player coming through the ranks as a, at the time, a 28 year old Alan Shearer, who was the England captain, he, was, he knew everything about you, um, knew your strengths, knew your weaknesses, and he knew how to get the best out of you, even though you were just a young kid.
0: In terms of Sir Bobby's a character, what was he like when he had interactions? Was it purely football, or would he want to know you personally as well?
1: No, he, it wasn't, it was both. Uh, he knew everything about you. Um, you know, he would, like I said, he would come and watch our youth team games, before on reserve team games, he was at every single game, home and away. Um, watching all the games. But then, you know, my dad was um, uh, an international rugby referee. So he was always asking about how my dad is. Did your dad referee this weekend? Or I seen your dad on the touchline at the Six Nations. or He knew everything about you. I mean, I don't know how he did. I mean, he must have sat in his office and researched every single player. But he knew knew everything about everybody. And, you know, it was still, I mean, what, 20 years on, still probably the, the greatest manager that I've, you know, worked under.
0: And in that youth team, you also came through at the same time as as Michael Chopra. What was he like at that age? Because he's someone who scored goals wherever he went.
1: Yeah, I mean Chop's was phenomenal. He was just a born goal scorer. Um, I, when I first went into Newcastle, I was 11 year old, and uh, Chop's was Chop's was there. So I came through all the the, the teams and ranks with him, uh, and even from a young age, you you could tell that this kid was going to go on and uh, and score goals at the highest level. And you know he didn't stay at the highest level for as long as he probably wanted to, but wherever he went, he scored goals, and uh, that was even evident from you know from a young age.
0: For yourself, I mean, coming through at Newcastle, it wasn't a case of you just coming through running the bill. You won the the Jackie Melbourne Trophy. You captained the reserve side. Just how proud does that make you, especially now looking back?
1: Yeah, really proud because to be honest with you, uh, it was Al Nervine was our coach, um, was our academy director, and still to this day one of the best. Football and educators I've ever come across, he was incredible. But I remember, I always remember, and I still say it now to the young kids that come coming through Phoenix. You know, it's, it's an occupation that not many people come through. You know, there's millions and millions of kids who want to be footballers, but there's very few that actually end up becoming it, becoming one. And, um, you know, when we sat down in our first meeting, there were 13 players there. And he said, out of these 13 players, one of you will probably still be playing professional football by the time you're 30. He was wrong. There was two. There's me and Chops. But his point was that you know you gotta you gotta work your work your socks off. And you know I was sitting in that room with with about six. I think it was six uh, youth internationals. So I didn't think I was going to be the one. I thought was going to be one of them. But you know perseverance, hard work, and dedication. You know got me to to be that one out of thirteen.
0: What was it like when you were going up to train with the first team? See, especially when you are the reserve team captain and you're going into the first team environment, even though it's training, is there more pressure on you such because people are aware of who you are?
1: Uh, no, not really. Because like I said, we were reserve team and first team interacted on a daily basis. You know, our dressing room was right next to the first teams and the first team was, had to walk past our dressing room to go in the gym. So they were always coming in and in and out and whatnot. So, you know, when we trained with them, there, was a, there wasn't really an expectation or anything of us. We just, we just had to perform. Um, you know, we trained regularly with them. The first team, obviously, I think they, they didn't at that time have, have sort of uh, 22 players. So, at the time, there was quite a few injuries at the centre-back position where I was coming through. So, I was training more on a daily basis with the first team with the reserves. But there was an expectation on me to keep performing, to try and stay in that group and not be the reserve team captain. You know, I wanted to be in the first team. Um, I didn't want to be known as the captain of the reserves. I wanted to be known as a first team player.
0: Being a defender, you must have had many battles in training with the likes of Craig Bellamy and Alan Shearer. Yeah. Just what were they like on a daily basis to train with?
1: Yeah, I mean, there were two um, unbelievable professionals. I mean, Bellas is Marmite. You either love him or you hate him. And he pushed boundaries. And, uh, I mean, you could see it as bullying, but it, it wasn't bullying. He literally just wanted to make sure he could trust you on a pitch. I mean, he would literally try and do anything and everything to put you off your game, both verbally and physically. And um, you had to stand up to him. I mean, it was a time and an era where if you didn't, then you weren't going to become a professional footballer. Um, and the lessons that he taught me, you know, were, were invaluable. Um, he was he was just such a winner um, and a great professional, you know, off the pitch as well. He was. Whilst he was always trying to get, you know, he was a pain in the arse, but for want of a better word, but he he would come in and explain why after training. You know, I'm expecting you to be able to do this because when I come out on a Saturday, I want you to get. Me. And it was just, that was how he was. And, and that was the same with Alan Shearer. And Alan Shearer was equally as, as competitive and equally as demanding of you as a young kid because at the end of the day, they were wanting to win games on a Saturday to potentially get in the Champions League and, and win trophies and win medals. And if a young kid was coming in and, and couldn't perform and train, and then he couldn't perform in front of 52,000 on a Saturday.
0: What do you remember from your debut? Because you made your debut in a European match, which is quite unique.
1: Yeah, I did. I was, um, it was the UEFA Cup. It was the, I think it was the round, last, round of 16, I think, against Olympiakos, And I was involved in the, um, the travelling party that went to the, the away leg, the first game. We won 3-1. Um, I think we were 3-1 up at half-time and they had two players sent off and, we came back to the home leg and I was on the bench this time. I wasn't involved in the I was involved in the match this squad for the away leg. And I had an inkling um at half time that potentially I was going one of us was gonna get on, one of the young kids. We were I think 2-0 up in the tie, so five one up in the leg and uh, and yeah, Graham Sooner's just turned around after about sixty odd minutes and he actually asked Steve Harper if he wanted the last twenty five minutes and Harps was like, No, I'm not gonna get anything out of this, stick one of the young kids off. So I want one of the young kids on, so basically looked at me. Stephen Carr had been playing a number of games, so I just said, go on, get stripped off, you're going on. And, and that was it, I made my debut.
0: I, I recently interviewed Graham and um, asked him about management now, and he said he probably thinks he couldn't be a manager now because his style of management wouldn't work with a modern player. What was he like with you and the team back then?
1: Um, I can understand where he's coming from. Um, there's a lot more political correctness nowadays, I suppose, than back then. Um, I mean, he was an old fashioned manager who demanded excellence. I mean, he was like that as a player, you know, he can, he's this trophy laden career. But for me, he was unbelievable. I mean, he's not fondly remembered on Tyneside. Um, it didn't exactly work out, I think, how he wanted it to work out. But again, it was hard to follow Bobby Robson, also Bobby Robson. But for me, he, he just spent countless hours helping me, trying to, you know, mould me. I was a centre-back and I was playing right back. So, countless hours in the video room, countless hours on the training pitch, trying to help me learn a new position to go into the Premier League. I mean, it's, it's all good and well trying to learn a new position when you're a young kid, you know, playing in the youth team. But you've got to learn a new position going into the Premier League. Um, and I'm forever grateful for him, firstly and foremostly, giving me my debut. But for the hours that he spent with me, um, giving me the confidence to go out and play, uh, and playing me week in week out, you know, I, I, I like to think that my performances, you know, warranted my my position in the team. Uh, and he picked me on them uh, performances. But you know, after every game, he was spending time with me. You know, this is what you need to do. You need to work on this. You know, well done. And here. Yeah, this is what I'm expecting of my fullback. And you know, for a guy who had the career that he had, and spending the time that he spent with me was um, was really it was it was it was an honor to work with him. Even though. Like I said, it didn't exactly work out well for him as the as the manager of the football club.
0: And in terms of yourself, again, you make your debut in the European match against Olympiacos, UEFA Cup, and you get your first league start at Old Trafford. I mean, talk about a baptism of fire.
1: Yeah, I know it was. Um, they call it the theatre of dreams, and it really was a dream come true. You know, to make my make my Premier League debut. I would love to have made it at St James's, being a Jody. But if there's anywhere else you want to make it, you want to make it at Man United, and we were. Um, we were hiding to nothing, you know. We were in a, a bit of a mini injury crisis. I think Stephen Carr played in the middle of the midfield at that day, um, and we went there with no expectations whatsoever. And I didn't really know until the the morning of the game. I think it was all, well, I was I had an incl- an inclination, you know, in the in the uh, in the week leading up to it. You know, I was in and out of the team, and then you know we normally do set pieces the day before, and I was in and out of that. You know, I think he was still kind of making his mind up, and then he just told me the morning of the game, "You're playing." Um, so it was no real time to get myself ready. Uh, and I, I, it was just, uh, I don't really remember much of the game um, in terms of my own performance, but we gave it a good go and we were 1-0 up. And then obviously Wayne Rooney scores that ridiculous volley. And I think it was Wes Brown scored after 80-something minutes. And, uh, you know, we nearly got something out of a game that we were expected to get nothing out of. And, but for me to make my debut, marking like of Ryan Giggs, um, you know, Wayne Rooney on the pitch, Players of, of that ilk was, um, certainly was a dream come true for me.
0: You mentioned playing against Wayne Rooney. At that time, he just went to Manchester United about the year before. He was the biggest, hottest prospect in English football. Went for record fee for a teenager. Is he up there with the best you've ever played against in the Premier League? Yeah,
1: yeah 100%. Um, I mean, he is just a phenomenal talent. Uh, and the longevity in his career is, uh, is a testament to how dedicated he is as a professional um he's a winner as well you know he's grown up in a in a you know, he's, i know he grew up at Everton but he you know he, he really progressed as a as a player at a club where you know winning is is the be all and end all and you know the players that have come through the likes of the gary nevilles uh the gigs is he's been in an environment where nothing nothing short of first place is acceptable and and that 's how he was as a player he wanted to be the number one wanted to be i mean he's england's record goal scorer record cap you know everything that Wayne Rooney's done it's uh, is about um, being the best and, and he certainly has. Uh, certainly was one of the best that I've come across
0: and we've mentioned him a few times already but I need to ask you because literally every single person I've had in the podcast that's played with Stephen Carr always talks about how underrated he was as a footballer and that he was, it was just a joy to play with would, would you agree with that sentiment?
1: yeah 100% I mean Again, a little bit like Graham Seuss Cars. He's not really fairly formally remembered in Newcastle. But again, for me, I mean, he was, I think he was 28 when he came into the club. And he was, um, for me, he was one of the best right backs in the Premier League uh, of his era. He's, he was just phenomenal. He was the, um, one of kind of the first attacking full backs. Um, but he was just such a great professional, dedicated on and off the field, worked his socks off to make sure that he, was, he could perform on a Saturday. Um, and I thought he was really, really, like you said, he's, he's one of the most underrated fullbacks in the, the Premier League era. And what a guy off the field as well. You know, I, had, um, I actually went into Birmingham a little bit later on in my career because he was injured. Um, but he, again, you know, he, would t- he took me out around Birmingham, um, made me feel welcome at the football club. He was a club captain at the time. And um, he was just such a really nice fella to work with. And again, a pleasure to work with such a, an established international like him.
0: And and also we talked about the the UEFA Cup game, the Premier League debut Old Trafford. Being a George, they just describe what it's like playing at St James's Park because I've been I've been lucky enough to go and the atmosphere is just electric.
1: Yeah, it really is. I mean, I've I grew up supporting the club. I was I was there before, you know, the stadium, the stadium is now. Um it was I mean, nineteen ninety was my first game when I was an eight-year-old kid. My aunties had season tickets for 40 plus years so i was you know begging her to go to the games um and just the for me it's the walking out to local hero um you know lining up with you know the teammates that are that beside you that's probably the most special moment that i'll take from my career especially as a jody walking out to, to that and then hearing the roar after local hero finishes and uh getting ready to to kick off it's um it's an incredible atmosphere. It's it's a, an intimidating place to go as a as a visiting player. Um, I know i have speaking to many, you know, former colleagues that have said that about going to St James's, and you know, even established international stars don't really fancy coming to Newcastle because they know what they're going to get. They're going to get, you know, a hot of an atmosphere and a in a in a tough game.
0: And after the the debut, you break into the team. You're playing. You've got games under your belt. Am I right in saying that you were approached by Walter Smith and asked you to play for Scotland?
1: Yeah, I, I was. Um, there was kind of whispers of you know me on the. I was just as I'd come through. I was a young lad and I was playing a lot of games. And as invariably, young you know, a young kids asking about your international. And you know, I had a couple of. I was told I had a couple of games watched by the England. I think it was Fendgore and Eriksson at the time. I don't think I was ever going to get into it, but it was. I think it was more because Scotland was sniffing around around well, just because my dad been a you know, Scottish referee. Um, the Caldwell, both Gary and Stevie were there at the time. Yep. Um, and I think they'd asked the question. You know, Walter Smith had been on the phone asking about me. And um, I, to be honest with you, at the time, I was, I was, I wanted to play for Scotland because that was my dad. My dad's Scottish. My mum's Scottish. Uh, even though none of them are, are born in England. And when we look back into my family history, I found out that all generations that would would make me available to play for Scotland were born in England. So that door was quickly shut. But I think because I'd kind of made noises that I wanted to play for Scotland before I knew all this. Um, England kind of went away by the wayside and like I, I don't think I would have ever been good enough to play for them. But, you know, that option was kind of taken away once I'd, uh, once I'd kind of been known that I want to play for Scotland.
0: And in terms of yourself being a local boy, getting out at St James's alongside those teammates, as you've said, the atmosphere. What did it feel like to be playing regular games in the Premier League? Because for me, talking to you, that was my dream as a youngster and you've lived yeah. that dream
1: yeah i was i mean I always just wanted to play in the Premier League I mean I didn't play any uh, for as long as I would like to, but you know I made fifty odd appearances there and you know I enjoyed every single one of them we were um we were a team that were kind of up and down were yo yo were either pushing for European spots, but you know or challenge or, you know fighting for relegation but for me to play in the Premier League against you know some of the world's best players was you know something that nobody can take away from me like I said, I wish I could have played there longer um but what I did, you know, manage to um, to achieve in playing in, in the Premier League for you know fifty-something games, it was it was something that, like you said, I said, I dreamt of as a kid.
0: And in terms of your time at Newcastle, another few managers, you would Glenn roeder came in, you would Big Sam as well, big character I imagine, and Kevin Keegan. What were the three of those guys like? I imagine very different characters.
1: Oh, far different. Every single one was different. Glenn came in at a time where. Um, I think Graham, Graham had just got sacked, and Graham was the actually the academy director at the time, and just took over the reins as uh, as a manager till the end of the season. I think it was Alan's last season as well, so he was helping out, and you know we we hit a real, real purple patch uh, and just got on a run of games that got us into the back into Europe, and then the following season, obviously Alan retired, there was big shoes to fill with Obafemi Martins coming in, and we we kind of suffered, I think, a little bit because of the European campaign we were you know Thursday night games and Sunday games it was it was tough we didn't have the biggest of squads um, and then obviously it didn't work out for Glenn and then big Sam came in and unfortunately for me I tore my cruciate in three or four game fourth games into the season so you know my kind of season was done but one thing that big Sam done was really good for me was I mean it's well renowned that he's you know he's the medical science team that he that he takes with him here then everywhere um and that was a real bonus for me in a long-term injury that I had. Some of the experts in the field help me recover, and you know, whilst I only played a couple of games under him, he was a he was really good to me. You know, took me on away trips, kept my kept me mentally with it because obviously it's really hard when you're out for nine months and you're training on your own. But he he kept me involved in the team. But again, didn't really work for him at Newcastle, and the King Kev came in and. Um, you know, I finished my time as a Newcastle player with with Keegan, and Keegan was something similar to, to Bobby Robson, and that he um, he just wanted to know everything about everybody. And you know, I was at the latter stages of my my recovery, and it was me and uh, me and Chris Newton invariably played him and Terry McDermott head tennis in the gym. Uh, never won. King Kevin uh, and Terry Mack were, you know, the head tennis champions, but that was just that was just kk all over He just had a a love for playing football and a love for his for his team and and a love for Newcastle and um you know i was coming to the end of my contract uh, you know i hadn't really I hadn't played a game i played three games all season and uh he kind of sat me down and said you know i had two options i either had the opportunity to stay in Newcastle uh, and be a and be a squad player and not really not really play you know he was looking to bring in a number of stars or go and try and progress my career elsewhere. But, he, you know, he put a contract in front of me and said it'll always be there until I sign for somewhere else uh, and that I would get a fighting chance if I wanted to stay. But, you know, kind of advised me to go and, you know, pursue a career elsewhere, which um, the day I signed for QPR was, um, he was the first to ring me and congratulate me and, uh, and wish me all the best. And, uh, you know, I'll be forever grateful for, for what he did for me in, in that latter stages of my time at Newcastle.
0: You move on to QPR, and I'm, I'm desperate to know. I've interviewed a few players. I've interviewed Joey Barton, and he was very forthright on QPR. The yeah. time you were there, the sort of four-year plan documentary we've all been able to watch since then. Honestly, what was it like being around the club at that time? Because on the documentary, it just seemed utterly chaotic.
1: <laughs> That's one word to describe it, yeah. Um, the first day of filming, actually, was the first day it was the first day that I signed. Um, I think Matt Hodgson, who is the the director, was was in and around, and it was the. I actually signed under Luigi Di Canio, and he got sacked on the same day, and he and Dowie came in. Uh, so, I was I was signed by the board, with obviously Dowie was was known to be coming in, but it was just. Um, I'm trying to be politically correct here because I've got a lot of still other friends here, but it was of just course. it was it was just carnage. I mean, you you didn't always gotten what was going on from one day to another. I mean. Flavio was—he's um, an extrovert, you know. He's—he's he's a showman. He wants everything wants to be surrounded by him, and you know he had a, he had plans to make this, you know, one of London's biggest clubs. And I mean, when I signed, the stadium was—it was it, it a—I was, was a shambles. But then when we went in for the first day of pre-season, it was like walking into Millionaire's Row, you know. That was everything was new. Everything was, you know, brand spanking. It was. It was brilliant, I mean, and I'll give one thing Flavio put his you know his money where his mouth is, you know he he really tried to make the club you know take it into the premier League you know we, we it was a four year plan, but they'd done it within three years, so whilst it was absolute carnage and you know one of the better words, sometimes it was just an absolute shit show, but it was it was it was fun to be part of it, you know, and I got stories that he could you know write a book on it and but I mean we had a great group of players that whilst everything that was going on in the background was um, yeah, it was, it was fun to watch. Um, the group stayed together, and you, know, when Neil Warnick came in, I think that was when it really calmed down, because he was the kind of manager that was needed to come in and tell these guys to kind of shut up and take a back seat that, "I'm going to take the reins. I'm going to be the one making the decisions. "Yeah, you've got all these millions, but you haven't got promotions under your belt." You know he had six, seven promotions, and he was the guy that really calmed everybody down. Um, you know, worked with Amit Batia, who Amit was the saving grace of that place. You know, he was the voice of reasoning. He was the guy who, you know, was part of the Mattel family and had his own, you know, fortune, but calmed Flavio down and, and took the club and from, um, you know, from imploding to, to getting into the Premier League.
0: One of the things during that documentary that I always actually felt sorry for the players with, and I, I'm not trying to lead you down this certain path, it's just... See the the amount of team meetings you had with different managers. How did you handle that as a squad? Because uh, on the documentary, I mean, you, the same scene in in the was it the canteen or whatever it was. It was like a new manager every five minutes.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was the running joke that the uh, the tea lady was going to turn up with a you know with a tactics board one day <laughs> or you know, cups of tea on a tactics board and tell she she's going to coach her, but. I mean, I think we went one season in particular, we went through, I think, six managers. I think Gareth Ainsworth was caretaker manager twice. Paul Hart came and went in the blink of an eye. You know, Mick Hartford got a spell and came and went. And, you know, I think it was, I think the season started with Jim Magilton, with Paolo Sosa coming in. It was just, it was, it was just, every team meeting you expect a new manager come in. And it was just, it was just chaotic. And But like I said, the players themselves, we just stuck together. Um, we just kind of try to look after ourselves, make sure that what, else, what was going on in the boardroom and upstairs was just not going to affect us as a group. I mean, performances was tough, um, you know, results didn't go our way. And I think, we, you know, we could point the finger. Well, so it's not really an excuse. You could point to the finger at, you know, everything that was going on in the, in the background. Like I said, a, man, a new manager was coming in at, uh, every other week with new ideas that he was going to be the one that was going to, you know, change it all. And Then there was another one coming in, and you know, two weeks later. So, like I said, it was it was chaotic. It was carnage. It was, but it was, you know, looking back on it, it was fun. There was never a dull moment, that's for sure.
0: You mentioned the fact that when Neil Warnock comes in, that changes in the sense that Neil comes in and basically, as you've said, says to whoever's involved, "Look, I've got the promotions. Let me go on with the job in hand." And he certainly does that. What was he like to work under from, from your perspective? I know he's back in the game now with Middlesbrough.
1: Yeah, and I mean, he came in when. And he just kind of, he just took control. You know, he just took over. He was the main man. And he said, you know, it's going to be my way or, or I'm not coming in. And I think he put his, you know, he put his medals on the table, uh, his promotion medals, and said, how many have you got? This is how many I've got. Let me get on with it. I will get you promoted. And, you know, the, the first season he was in there, we were you know, fighting relegation, but he just went back to basics you know, get the ball forward. We know we had some we had some real talented players at the time. Um and he just got the best out of them talented players that, you know, enabled us to uh to survive that first season and then get promoted the next. And, you know, he built a team around uh Adele. Um but he had the he had the he had the piano carriers for the for the pianists. You know, he had Clint he brought in Clint Hill, brought in Sean Derry, Paddy Kenny, um Bradley or players it he knew and trusted, Jamie Mackey came in. Blazing knew and trusted that could allow Adele to, to shine and do what he never to, uh, needed to do to, to win us games. Um, but Adele was going to win us games, but these guys were going to win us the championship. And mm. um, and that certainly proved to be the case.
0: I want to ask you about Adele in terms of talent. Now, this is going to sound daft, and I'm sure many people have said this to you, and you might hold this opinion as well. People say he didn't achieve his potential, but then you look at his CV and you think, playing for AC Milan and Benfica, but I, I would still go with that, with the ability he showed, especially in that promotion campaign. You just looked at him when he got into the Premier League and you thought, oh, I, I need more from you, and you could have went to the very top.
1: 100%. One of the biggest talents that I've ever come across, but one of the most wasted talents as well. I mean, he, shouldn't, he should have stayed at AC Milan. He should have been at Tottenham for years. He shouldn't have been coming into the Championship Adele should have been at the highest and been talked about in the, in the same ilk as, as world-class players because that was what his talent was. His talent was absolutely world-class. Like I said, he won us games uh, on his own sometimes in that championship. But then when you come to the Premier League, it takes a different kind of mentality to stay at that level. And Adele never had that mentality. You know, he's starting to show it now when he's 30. It's too, but it's too late for Adele to be doing it. You know, he's obviously starring now at Benfica. But, you know, it didn't work out for him at AC Milan. He only stayed there for a short period of time. Didn't work out for him at QPR when we were in the Premier League because he didn't have the right mentality. I mean, he, physically, his body shape was a disgrace. You know, he didn't dedicate himself off the field. Didn't dedicate himself on the training field either. I mean, the, the year that we got promoted, Adele would turn up on a Thursday because Neil didn't want him in and around the place Monday to Monday. Sometimes he just turned up for Friday to take set pieces and he would roll him out on a Saturday to play games. Because he had the total wrong attitude, uh, didn't want to work. But again, it came back down to Neil's man managing, so knowing how to get the best out of a guy. And you know, when he tried, Neil tried to change him when we got into the Premier League. We gave him the number ten jersey, which you know is it's one of the most um, infamous jerseys for or famous jerseys for a QPR player. And it, it just didn't work. Trying to give him extra motivation to be to be to take his game to the next level, just. Wasn't didn't work for Adele because he didn't have that you know fire in the belly to to get to that next level himself. And like I said, he's one of the biggest talents I've ever come across, um, but one of the most wasted as well.
0: And as a see, I mean, you're obviously a coaching now. You, it's one of those things where Ravel Morrison's another one by all accounts whose talent is absolutely extraordinary, but he's not achieved that potential. Just how frustrating is that when you're a teammate? When you think to him, think of all the ability you've got. Do, I was going to say, did you try and speak to him? But I'm sure hundreds of people have tried to speak yeah. to him, but he just doesn't take it in.
1: No, it was in one ear and out the other. You know, you'd maybe get two or three days where Adele would get in the gym and then Adele would work on extra stuff and training and he, or he'd actually just come turn up for training. You know, he would do it for fleeting moments and then he would roll back into his old ways. And, you know, but we, that promotion season, we kind of just found that just let him do what he needs to do because he was, like I said, he was winning us games on a Saturday on his own. I mean, I remember one game in particular, the Swansea game at home, where he absolutely tore them apart. You know, he, he scored one of the most ridiculous goals I've ever seen. You know, not Meg, I think it was Joe Allen and curled it in from 20, 25 yards. And you look at that and you think, well, all right, Adele, go and, you know, have four days off and we'll see you on Friday because that's what he needed to do because he was winning us games and he got us promoted. And, you know, whilst football's a short career, you I would, I'm would. of the mentality, and a lot of that QPR team with the mentality that we needed to work to get to that next level. It seemed like Adele didn't need to, but to get that level is one thing, but then to get to the next level, which we were never going to achieve, but Adele could, he just didn't have that desire to do so. And it was so frustrating for us because who knows what Adele could have been and who knows where Adele could have taken every other player. you know, I mean, likes of Clint Hill, Sean Derry, um, in particular, two in particular, I mean, they ended up playing, you know, countless Premier League games because, because of players like Adele. Um, but could they have had even more longer um, if he, you know, managed to dedicate himself a little bit more? And it's, it's, it's just frustrating as a coach and as a player when you see a talented boy like this just kind of not want to do that extra, that extra yard to, to be better for himself.
0: An eventful time at QPR, but a successful one as well. How did life at Crystal Palace when you moved there permanently compare?
1: Yeah, I mean, that for me is still the standout moment of my career that season. Um, again, I left QPR at the end, uh, end of that year. You know, I'd had a, I had told my cruciate the year that we got promoted. Um, so I only played four games. Um, again, it seemed to be kind of a running theme. Um, and I went to QPR at a time where Dougie was putting together a team of odds and ends, you know, players that were kind of discarded by clubs, weren't really um, weren't really wanted. Um, you know, like I said, the previous season, I'd, I'd played the first six months at Crystal Palace and then the last, the second half of the season at Birmingham. Um, so going in, it then, their expectations were just to survive. To be honest with you, there was it was a team, like I said, made of made of players that nobody wanted, but we somehow managed to get put into this kind of robotic mindset that this is how we were going to play. You know, Dougie got into a mindset that we're going to be defensive and let the likes of the Wilfred Zaha's and Yannick Balassi's go and just win us games. Similar to like we did with the Dell at QPR. And, but these guys worked their nuts off um, and we just managed to pick win after win. Somehow managed to win games and then we went on an incredible run that... Um, they got it, you know, and it culminated in, you know, getting promoted via the the playoffs at what against Watford at Wembley.
0: And in terms of that team, young Zahat at the time, just just how good was he?
1: Ah, uh, again, I mean, ability-wise, similar to Adele at QPR, Wilf was winning us games and uh, on his own in terms of setting guys up. I mean, his assist was. Uh, him and Yala were just the two flair players that were allowed to do what they want because they had, you know, a, a unit behind them that would allow them to do that. Glenn Murray was scoring goals for fun. You know, I think 30 something goals in that season was that front three was just phenomenal. Um, and Wilf was, you know, the star of the show. Um, but his his dedication off the field was um, was incredible to see. You know, he worked his his socks off. He wanted to be the best player on the training field, never mind the best player on the pitch. And, you know, Dougie knew how... Dougie worked with him at younger ages and seen his progression through from the from the academy. And it was no surprise that, you know, Man United came sniffing and he ended up going there halfway through that season. Being a
0: Jordy, what was it like teaming up with Kevin Phillips?
1: Yeah, it was fun. Um, I tried to kick six bags of the proverbial out of him in training. We used to <laughs> always... Uh, I think it's the only Macam that I uh, that I love. You know, his goal at the end of that season um to get promoted. I think it's the only time I've celebrated a Mackham scoring a goal. But I mean Kev was probably one of the, the most natural goal scorers I've ever come across. You know, shooting, shooting practice. He never missed the target. Um he was I mean he was thirty nine, 40 year old at the time when he was coming in and he was still as uh fit as a fiddle, um, still dedicated to to wanting to play. You know, I think he left Palace at the time and went on to continue for another couple of seasons or a season after that and that was just him as a dedicated professional and again, what a great guy to, to learn from even for myself um, how to, to have longevity in your career and, and stay at the highest level and yeah, whilst it was hard to be able to, um, to learn from a Macam it was, uh, like I said, it's probably the only Macam that, uh, that I love
0: We can't talk about your spell at Palace without asking you just what is Ian Holloway like?
1: <laughs> Ollie's um, he's as mad as as he comes across. Uh, he's just uh, a fun, loving, exuberant character. Which um, he found it tough when he first came in because you know Ollie's style of players just attack and go all out attack, free flowing football. And to be honest with you, we didn't have that kind of players. You know we had the Wilson Yarlars and uh, and Andre Moritz and little Johnny Williams. But outside of that, you had just honest pros who were. You know, it's it's had on the tin. You know what it's it said, it does what it says on the tin, kind of thing. And um, Ollie kind of suffered the first couple of first couple of weeks, but then he realised that he needed to he needed to change somewhat his style. And you know that was to Ollie's internal credit, he did that, and uh, he found a way, kind of redefined his own philosophy to get uh, to get us promoted. And you know we we had some running battles with him, um, as you know, as probably many players do. Um, but he was he was great. He was great to work with day in, day out. I mean, his and knowledge is, is up there with, with the best that I've worked with and um, such a great guy to, to work for. And, you know, it's, like I said, it was testament to him that he found a way to blend uh, two kind of contrasting styles and, and make it work together to to get us promoted.
0: Yeah, well, that's the thing with your career, you look at coming through at Newcastle, you look at promotion success at QPR, promotion success as well at Crystal Palace. A few other spells in English football, the likes of Barnsley and Coventry, but I really want to ask you about the spell in India, Kerala Blasters. Just, what was it like playing in India?
1: Yeah, I mean it was funny because it was—I didn't even heard of what the league or anything like that. I think I went there in the second year. The first year, Chops actually was there with Kerala the first year, um, and I went to Julian Sporoni's testimonial at the end of the uh, end of the season, and I'd just been released by Palace. Uh, I'd had two the previous two seasons I was alone at Barnsley, but. I, got, I was still a to Palace and um, Peter Taylor rang me up. The next morning I was on the train on the way back up saying that he'd been speaking to Steve Parrish and asking he was going to take over at Kerala Blasters in India and did I fancy it? And uh, I'm not going to lie, money came into the decision as well. What Kerala were offering me was uh, phenomenal for, for three, four months' work. It was probably the equivalent of a, a year's salary in, uh, in League One. So it was the first and probably one and only time that money played an impact in my decision. But I also wanted to go for the experience. I wanted to play abroad. I never thought it was going to be India, but I thought you know why not? You know my wife was my wife was uh, really supportive of me going out for four months. Um, and I absolutely loved every single minute of it. You know, we again, kind of a running theme. Uh, We had some issues with the, the upstairs with the board, um, in terms of how they wanted to see things run. They didn't allow Peter to. To run it, how he should have won it, or how he wanted to run it, and but it was um, it was a phenomenal experience. A beautiful country, Kerala as as a kind of a state, and Kochi as a city was was stunning. Um, got to see some incredible sights. um Apologies, the binmen are just coming up. I'm gonna I'm gonna it's gonna be a bit loud for about ten seconds. But yeah, it was incredible, um, and I loved it, uh, and I wanted to go for the next season. Um, it just didn't work out, but it was uh, it was a decision that you know I was worried about making. I didn't know what I was going into, um, but like I said, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, don't regret one minute of, of going out to India. I'm conscious of your time. Don't worry, alen No, oh, I'm, I'm I'm free. I'm not training till later on now, so I've got as much time as you need.
0: In terms of your career, how do you reflect back on it as a player? having played in England, went to India and then obviously playing in America as well before the coaching started?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm frustrated with myself that, you know, I didn't, um, I didn't play for longer at the highest level. Um, you know, I've got many... I don't, I don't believe when players say um, they don't have regrets. I don't believe in that. Um, I think you always there's always something in your mind thinking, oh, I wish I could have done that differently. I wish I could have done that differently. Um, just bear with me one second. Sorry about this. Um, but yeah, I I wish I could do my career all over again. If I'm brutally honest with you. Um, sorry, it's just gonna. But it's a thing. It's what is it? Ten past seven in the bin when I come and crashing around here. It's uh, they don't seem to have a time a time thingy here. But um, sorry about that. But no, I do. I have I have regrets throughout my career. I wish I could have done things differently. I wish I could have stood up for myself more in my younger time. My career, especially at Newcastle, um, I think I could have had the opportunity, or should have, could have had the opportunity to play longer there. Um, I didn't. I didn't do enough um, in terms of standing up for myself. Um, I kind of just accepted decisions, just because I was a young lad. Um, something that, you know, I think it was too late in my career where, um, where I learned that. Um, but i didn't also i didn't think that at 18 year old or 16 year old when i went in as a, as an apprentice think i would have had the career that i had you know i always said that i wanted to retire on my terms um, i retired at 34 um it was a year younger than what i wanted to i wanted to get 35 you know the retirement age but uh, i enjoyed every minute of it but i do have regrets and wish i could have done things differently um but, and that being said, like I said, I don't think I would have, uh, I would have had the career that I had when I was, you know, 16-year-old walking into the academy.
0: Just a few quick fire questions to, to, to end, and for a few of them, first of all, non-football related. What's your favourite sport out with football?
1: Golf. I'm a massive golf fan. Love my golf, love playing. Um, I mean, I'm in a state in Arizona here, and Phoenix is a city where, you know, golf courses are, uh, you know, always around the corner, and, Whilst well, it's 100 and something degrees every single day, I'm still trying to get out on the course and, uh, and knock it about. So that's the one sport, yeah.
0: Are you a film person or box set?
1: Box set. Uh, I like the film. and what You know what it is? I've got two young daughters and uh, I love watching the Disney films. But um, yeah, I'm definitely a, a box set man. Favourite music? I don't. I, I'm. I'm not a music fan. If I'm honest, I, I'm loving. I love country music. Being out here in Phoenix is a big country state, and my wife is her music knowledge. Nobody will beat her. Her music knowledge is second to none. She. I would, on if she was to take on anybody and beat the intro, I put my money on her. But for me, I was always a talk sport man. Just just to, to stick talk sport on and, and listen to that.
0: In terms of yourself now, Peter, being in the US. Is, that, is the US a country you want to settle
1: in now that you've been here? Good question. Um, I'm, in a, I'm in a club where I'm still young in my development as a coach and I've got, I'm very fortunate that um, Phoenix are enable me to, to grow as a coach. Um, whilst I'm working with the first team, we've got our, uh, our bidding for the, the MLS Academy. Um, the, the academy system's kind of changed over here over the last... Two three months and and we're looking to get into the MLS academy and I'm going to be trying to be part of that so I can help you know grow the grow the youth side of things. I mean we have affiliated to us we've got a number of clubs that in total I've got about six and a half thousand kids attached to it, the club and you know my goal is to eventually work in the youth system. I'd love to work at the castle that's that's my dream to work back there but at this moment in time. Um, I'm absolutely loving it being here. I'm, I'm at, like I said, I'm at a club where I've, I can make mistakes, uh, I can learn and learn from their mistakes, and and very fortunate to be working in a country where you know I have to put sun cream on before I put my milk in my cornflakes. <laughs> a few football ones to finish. Best players you played with? Uh, Nobby Solano um, is one of them. Uh, Paddy McCall. Uh, of the most talented players I've ever come across Um, and for me I grew up idolising them. but you know Alan Shearer as well
0: Toughest direct opponent?
1: Uh, Wayne Rooney we mentioned him and I have to say this fella because he's one of our owners and he pays my bill Didier Drogba Um, played with Dids for my last year at at Phoenix but played against him when he was in his pomp at Chelsea and he for me was probably one of the most complete centre forwards I'd ever come across
0: who would you say is the most underrated player you played with, who maybe the, the fans didn't fully appreciate or understand the role, but as a, as a professional on the pitch, you realise just how important he was to the team?
1: I got this, asked this question a couple of weeks ago, and um, I, didn't, I didn't think about him until afterwards, but probably Scott Parker, um, when I was at Newcastle. He was an unbelievable professional, probably one of the best I've ever come across. Um, and it's no it's no surprise that he's, you know, thriving now as a manager at Fulham because his football and knowledge even as a player was was incredible. But what a professional. Um, how he trained and conducted himself on and off the field um, was you know, was awe inspiring for me as a as a young kid coming through and to have him he you know, he took over the armband from Allen and there was no better captain for Newcastle at that time than him because he led by example and you know, uh, he went on to have, you know, a great, great career, played. I believe he should have been a top four player for longer. He deserved, his, his talent deserved to be a top four player for, for longer. Um, you know, I, deserve, I think he deserved to win more England caps. I think he, he was at a time where we were trying to fit, square, uh, you know, round pegs and square holes, so to speak. And, and Scotty was, should have been, a team should have been built a kind of around him. Because I think he was, he was probably one of the most underrated players of, of my of my generation and of the generation where there was a countless amount of stars.
0: And the last question I've got for you: You came through the Newcastle academy. You lived your dream of playing for Newcastle. What advice would you give to any young players listening?
1: Um, dedicate yourself to becoming a professional. Um, you know, it's it's not easy getting to the top. Um, you've got to sacrifice. Um, a lot of things you know you can't be going out with your mates on a on a Saturday night um you gotta you know you can't you obviously enjoy the odd night out but you gotta be dedicated and want to and want to 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 have the courage to say no um one of my biggest personal values is 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 courage you know having the courage to to stay out longer in the training field having the courage to uh work in the gym to when you know your body doesn't feel like it wants to do so um like I said, having the courage to say no to your mates when they're going out on a Saturday night and, and you've got a, a game, on a, a reserve game on a Monday or something like that. So just dedicate yourself, you know, give every, yourself every opportunity to, to look back when you're finished thinking, yeah, you know, if I made it, it was because I did these things. If I didn't make it, well, it wasn't for the want to try. Um, so that would be the one thing I would say.
0: But Peter. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, no, thank you so much. Thank
1: you for us. Thank you very much for asking us today. So we'll dive down to the ocean and we'll
0: make her home in a deep sea cave and shells will all be open they'll be filled with song they'll be filled with song we'll dive down to the ocean and will make her home in a deep sea cave and shells